chapters 6 and 7. And each speech has, um, is calling out Israel for evil that they're doing. It has punishment for past sin. And then it, and then it gives hope for the future. In this last speech, God finally brings official charges against Israel. This chapter is read as a courtroom scene. So we're going to start reading Micah chapter 6, verse 1. And let's try to identify some of the players in the courtroom drama, all right? Can you, can you help me with that? This is Micah 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, listen to what the Lord says. It says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So can you guys identify some of those players? Who do we have in, the, in a courtroom? Who do you normally have? And again, I need audience participation. Judge. We have a judge, all right? Anybody, who, what else? What are the other players that we have? Jury. Jury defendants. Prosecutors. Okay. So who, who do we have in this verse? Who's the, well, let's start with the jury. The mountains. The hills. Who is the defendant? Israel. Israel. And the prosecutor? God. Yeah. So we have, oh, I was going to use a dry erase board, but I forgot. That's okay. My mind's a little crazy. Okay, so we have the jury is, so the jury is, is the mountains and the hills. And the defendant is, is Israel. The prosecutor is God. God is bringing charges against Israel and wants the mountains and the hills to be the jury to to discern whether this evidence brought against them is right or not. So the mountains and the hills, the foundations of the earth, they have been around forever since creation. So God knows that they have been witnesses to all that God has done and all that the people have done. So they are worthy jurors. I'm just like not looking forward to the day that I get called up for jury duty because I'm like, how do I have any more knowledge of what's going on in this case than anybody else. But in this case, the mountains and the hills have seen everything, and they know the evidence that's presented. Now that we've established that, the, the players in this case, let's take a brief recess because I love courtroom dramas. Anybody else? Anyone else in the room love courtroom dramas, cop shows, Anything like that? I might be a junkie because, like, every documentary, the JonBenet Ramsey documentary came out, O.J. Simpson documentary, uh, Making of a Murderer, it's coming, I think his second season's coming out, um, the Serial Podcast, anybody listen to season three? We're on season three. Uh, we also like, like, not just documentaries, though, we like the fake stuff, too, so, like, Monk, we just finished all eight seasons of Monk. It's pretty, it's intense, I know. Um, NCIS, I've watched like all of them multiple times on Netflix, but I'm also keeping up with the current ones. I pay for CBS just for that. Um, JAG, anybody JAG? Anybody watch JAG? It's an oldie, but it's really good. I grew up watching that. And then Law and Order SVU, it's a terrible one, but just can't not watch it. So, okay, so now, because my voice is getting a little, little sore, turn to your neighbor Talk about your favorite courtroom drama, cop show, whatever, and share what you like about it, if you like it. I'm assuming you like it, because I do.
All right, so I'm assuming you all had great conversation about this so we can all go home after church and pop on our favorite drama. So I'm not really sure why I like the, the documentaries, you know, because documentaries, usually in the dramas, like, like some semblance of justice is attained, right? Like they find the right person who did the crime. We get the full picture of everything, like from beginning to end. So we know, yeah, they're on the right track. And, and everyone ends up happy at the end of the show, at least in Monk. Like everyone's happy at the end of the show, even though like someone died and they had to go through court and all this stuff. But documentaries for me are mostly heart-wrenching and heartbreaking because where's the justice? Like, it's, it's almost like we get this, this full picture of a broken system. Usually in documentaries, I see, like, lawyers and judges being bought off on the wrong side of truth and innocent persons being charged unfairly. And, and it's usually because they don't have all the knowledge. They don't have the, the, um, the privilege of getting to see the full picture like we do. And so documentaries just devastate me. But I want to move back into, into this courtroom. So court is now reconvened. And God, the prosecutor, is getting ready for God's opening statement. So we're going to read Micah 6, verses 3 to 5. It says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. It says that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What an opener, right? God brings all the emotion. What have I done to you, people? Have I not rescued you over and over again? God recalls and reminds the defendant of all that God has done to maintain his end of this covenant. He brought them out of slavery into freedom. He sent people to lead them, also a woman, just saying. He turned curses from foreign kings into blessings, and he brought them safely from the wilderness at Shittim to the promised land at Gilgal. All this so that every step of the way, God's people would know that God is with them, that God loves them, that God is faithful. We're going to recess again, just just so that we can dig into this more. Why is God even bringing charges against this group of people? That's something that we, I, I think we should ask. Why does God even care about this group of people? Like, who are they to God? Verse 2 reminds us that these are God's people. They have a covenant together that says that they will be God's people, and God will be their God. And they have broken that covenant. Well, we've seen that all through Micah, right? They, they're worshiping idols and not really acting like God's people, not really representing God at all in the world. And so this covenant that God made with God's people thousands of years ago has been broken, and this is what brings us to this court case. Now, if we forget that this, co if we forget that this covenant even exists, then none of this really makes sense. Because this relationship that God has had with God's people that God just brought up in the opening statement is really the core, the root of this sadness, this heartache that God is bringing to this courtroom. So I want to talk a little bit about covenant. If you know me, this, this is one of my favorite things to talk about is covenant. Love covenant relationships. 
But I Googled it. I Googled the definition of covenant, and the only, it was so ridiculous. Like, the definition that it gave me was agreement. <laughs> I was like, no, no. <laughs> well, because we know with any word, there's, like, a lot of connotation that gets, that gets built into a word over time and over uh, a relationship with a word. And so um, it, it really begins to mean more than just this basic definition of agreement. So I went back to the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word in this, in this um, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit, I think. I don't know. I didn't take Hebrew. Um, but it's spelled B-E-R-I-T. And it, it means to either cut, um, as in like when you would cut a piece of flesh in order to, to do like a blood agreement, a blood pact, or to, um, or to join. So like there's two, two root words. So to cut, as in to signify covenant is being made, or to join as in like two parties coming together and making an agreement. This word um, is, is found in scripture over 280 times in different various um, uh, words and in context. So I, have a, so I have a better definition than just agreement for you. So more theological and kind of a simplistic theological definition for covenant is that it is an agreement made by God and humans in which God promises to do or not do stuff, and humans either accept or reject the promises made. If the people accept, it implies that humans will then submit to God completely and join then a community of people who enjoy a relationship with God and all that comes with that, including protection and care. So an agreement between God and people where God says, I will do this or I won't do this, and the people say, okay, and then they go on living together. So easy, right? No big deal. Except we know all through scripture that that's not as easy as it sounds, right? So there, we're going to look at a couple different covenants. Uh, the first one is creation. And I don't think we ever really think of creation as a covenant. So I'm gonna, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. You don't have to uh, flip there because um, I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, Genesis 1, chapter 27 to 30, it says, So God created mankind, humankind, in, his, in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. So it was through creation of the world and defining that relationship that, that humans had with creation that God made a covenant with humanity to provide all the, all the food they would ever need, all the comfort they would ever need, and all humans had to do was multiply and take care of creation. And God would take care of them. Easy, right? God says, I'll give you everything you need, and this is what you do. Well, when that covenant was broken, as we know, the, the consequences weren't the end of the relationship. They were the end of the garden, so the humans couldn't live in the garden anymore, but it wasn't the end of their relationship with God. And that's the most important thing about covenant. Although we break the covenant, the relationship isn't over. Now, the humans had to work now, and they had to toil the ground for food. There were labor pains and hostility with other creatures. But God did not leave them. Just because the covenant was broken, God did not mean that God was out. 
The next covenant we see in Scripture God made, God made was with Noah. Um, so we've all probably heard some sort of story of like Noah and the ark, right? Well, it's, the real story is actually pretty brutal. So if you haven't read it in Scripture, I encourage you to do it. It's kind of brutal. But God chose Noah not because he was perfect, not because he was already doing all the right things, but because he was faithful to God. He was already worshiping God, already in a relationship with God. So God chose him not because he was perfect, but because he was faithful. And after the flood ended, um, Noah sacrificed some, some animals just as worship to God. And God even says this. He says, says, in Genesis 8, he says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So even though God knows that we have evil in our hearts, he's still making promises with us and still continuing that relationship. Genesis 9, he says with Noah, he says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the earth, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, this is the covenant, this covenant that God makes with Noah is before Israel. It's before there's even this people called Israel. And so this covenant between God and every living creature is what we call a general covenant. This is not just, so the sign of this covenant, this general covenant with all people and all creatures and all creation, the sign of this covenant is a rainbow in the sky to remind God, first and foremost, that, that God has promised that even though people do evil things, God will never flood the earth like that again. So this covenant, probably because of its general nature, doesn't have much that humanity is agreeing to. It's mostly just God saying, I promise to not do this. I'm going to be in relationship with my creation, and I'm not going to flood it anymore. So there are general uh, covenants, like creation was a general covenant. Uh, the Noahic covenant is, is general. And then we have um, particular covenants. So in general covenants, everyone is blessed by the relationship, and everyone also has to deal with the consequences of breaking that covenant. So when humanity or creation goes against God and how God created the world, there are natural consequences because God made this covenant with creation, and it's just how God created the world. But once God chooses Abraham and his descendants to be God's particular people— the covenants become more particular as well. So a couple chapters after Noah, we find Abraham, and this is Genesis 12. And so God makes this particular covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this covenant right here, Genesis 12 with Abraham, Abraham, is the covenant, is the beginning of God's people. And so everyone who was born into Abraham's family after him will be a part of this covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is, is a particular covenant, an agreement between God and a particular group of people, which means now God is going to be asking for a little bit more. 
It's not just this general covenant that everyone gets to live into, but now because it's a little particular, it's going to ask for a little bit. And so the sign of this covenant is circumcision for all males, which for Abraham at 99 years old would have been painful. But for each of us, as we are brought into this covenant through we're brought into this covenant covenant through baptism as Christians. Paul says in a letter to the Colossians, it's chapter two, verse eleven. He says, "In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith." in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so when, when Christ was buried, when we are baptized, we're buried with Christ and brought into this new family, into this covenant with God. All right, yeah, enough of covenants yet? Because there are actually three more in Scripture. But we're only going to look at one more. Um, so the next covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Um, you know, like the Ten Commandments. Moses, Mosaic. Um, so now, because my voice needs a little bit of break, I want you to turn to your neighbor and discuss your most favorite of the Ten Commandments, because we all have one, right? And your least favorite of the Ten Commandments, all right? Most favorite and least favorite. Discuss with your neighbor. I know you all have, all have an answer. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus. All right, so everyone pick a favorite and a least favorite covenant. So in Exodus, um, you can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 21, I think, um, just in case you wanted to reference those. But Exodus 19 verse 5 is when um, Moses, or when God makes this covenant with, uh, with Moses. It says, then Moses went up to God, and the Lord, got, the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, the covenant that they made with Abraham, but then also now this new covenant that God is making with, with Moses, 
Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This particular group of people will now be God's. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now this time, the whole people of Israel, it was probably about thousands of people. And they came out of Egypt, out of slavery. God delivered them through the through the, the Red Sea and on dry land and got them away from Egypt. They are like on fire. They're like, yes, God, we will do whatever you want. You just saved us from those guys. You know, anything, lay it on the table, we'll do it. They are ready to be in full relationship with this protector, provider, savior God. Now we know like just a, a chapter later, they go back on that because we are very forgetful people, right? We're like, ooh, shiny, let's do that. <laughs> and we completely forget that, oh, we were just like fully on fire for God. Well, fast forward a thousand years through wandering in the desert, a couple different kings, lots of wars. Through all those years, even though God knows that we are very forgetful people, that we wander a lot, God has provided food, various times leadership, direction, victory in battles, and everything else that they have, God has provided for them. But here we are back in the courtroom thousands of years later, and we're dealing with the same stuff that we wander from God. That though God has made all these covenants with us, and that most of the time God has a much bigger part of the covenant, that God says, I will do all of this for you if only you will do this one thing for me. God has the much bigger end of the deal, and yet we are the ones that wander. So this is the history that God is bringing up in his opening statement. Because this is the covenant that the people have broken, not just once, but over and over and over again. And we hear that in God's opening statement. We, what have I done to you? All right, so court is back in session. And now it's time to hear the defendant's testimony. Uh, yeah, opening statement, testimony, whatever, I don't know. Not really that great at the language. All right, so Micah uh, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is the, this is the defendant. These are, these are the people of Israel. This is what they respond to God. They say, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Their fruit in my body for the sin of my soul? <laughs> wow. What kind of response is that? Definitely a defensive one, right? Every, everything just keeps getting more grandiose as he goes on. Well, one calf. No, 10,000 calves. Or 1,000 calves. 10,000 rivers of oil. And then my firstborn. This is how I respond to people when they've caught me in the wrong. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you, what do you expect from me? I'm a terrible person. I'm worthless, and everyone hates me. What do you expect from me? Now what, now what do you want from me? Do you want me to just be perfect now? This is what Brene Brown, she calls this a shame spiral. This is what I go in every single time someone catches me. Shame spiral all the way down. I know none of you, none of you do this, but have you ever, do you know a friend who has done this before? And yes, Israel is certainly in a shame spiral. 
Israel knew that all of this was ludicrous, absurd, and quite frankly, an insult to God that they are even bringing this up. Because the offerings that they list as they keep getting grandiose as they go, they know that that is not what God requires. And that, in fact, when they get to the child sacrifice, that they know that God hates that. That that is what all the other nations are doing for their gods. But this God most distinctly said with Abraham, no, we do not do child sacrifice. Yahweh, your God, does not accept that. And that's just it, I think. We can see their heart right there. They're so far removed from the relationship with God that they try to appease God like they would the idols that they've been worshiping. But they'd heard over and over and over again from the prophets, from Nathan when he was confronting David, from Isaiah and Amos who were also contemporaries with Micah. They heard over and over again that God does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. What God desires is a broken and contrite heart. I want to pause here because I think this is where a lot of us get tripped up in our relationships with God. And I think if we have friends that say that they're no longer Christian or, or have a, a broken relationship with God, I think this is where we get tripped up. I think we sin, we make a mistake, we mess up. And instead of admitting that, instead of coming before God and saying, God, I messed up, we, we skip straight to the shame spiral and the thoughts that rush in are, well, that relationship is over. I'm done. God, God isn't going to want me. God doesn't love me. Definitely not after that. And we get to the point where we say we can't go back, can never earn God's love back after that huge failure. And that's, and that's I think, where Israel is. They're like, well, God, yes, you've proven yourself over and over again. And obviously there's nothing that we can do that is going to make up for what we've, what we've done. But this isn't true. This is, this, that's not what covenant is. Just because the covenant is broken does not mean the relationship is over. We can't necessarily earn back our relationship with God, but by even asking this question like Israel, we've completely missed the point. Covenant is not earned. The relationship is not earned. And we hear this in the next verse in Micah 6.8, this famous triad. This is God's answer that changes the question. Now, it seems like the prophet is speaking for God and giving this response because the prophet is like, guys, I've told you this over and over again. Why haven't you heard me yet? He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think he's suggesting here that God is more interested in the quality of our everyday life, our everyday life with God, than he is with our random religious practices. God is more interested in the quality of our everyday life with God than our random religious practices. And I know that's bold to say. I know it's bold to say, especially for a pastor of a church, because coming to worship is a religious practice. But God is more concerned with the quality of our everyday life with God, which includes coming to worship, being a part of a community, than our random religious practices. But I want to break, this, break down this verse and see what the various pieces mean and see what God actually expects from us. 
what would this have meant to the hearers in Micah's day? Justice, mercy, and walking humbly. So justice here, this is the Hebrew word, again, I didn't take Hebrew, mishpat. And it means to judge or to bring justice. More so even to govern or defend or vindicate. As God's people, Israel has committed to govern, defend, and vindicate like God would. And this is an action. It's not just, it's not just enough to complain about something that's wrong, but this is an action to act justly, do justice. We do something about fairness and equality for our neighbor. I've heard it said elsewhere, you probably have too, but love your neighbor as yourself. Mercy here is the, word, the Hebrew word hesed. Now, in writing this teaching, I did a whole word study on this one word because I love this word in Scripture, but it didn't make the final cut. So if you want to know more about this, then let's get coffee later because I love this word. This word occurs over uh, 240 times in Scripture, and in some commentaries, it's pointing back to this covenant with God. So sometimes in Scripture, it's used in a, in a relationship be- between people, this hesed, this mercy, this love that people can have for one another. Um, but... It, all of that is pointing back to our relationship, our covenant with God. We, we have this mercy, this love for one another because of the hesed that God has for us. This hesed is, um, oh, this love, mercy. So uh, love, whatever that word is, hesed. Um, God wants us to love this covenant we have with God so much that it extends to every other relationship that we have, that we are faithful, not out of manipulation, not out of resentment, but out of love. And so that our unmanipulated loving kindness will be evident with God, so we, we reciprocate that hesed towards God and, and with those around us. Uh, one commentator translated it this way, love, love which I thought was really cool. Love, love. And we know that we love because God first loved us. So this last one is what gets me. So we have um, do justice, love mercy, or love kindness. And this last one is what gets me. This is what changes the answer, the question altogether. Israel asks, what one-time sacrifice can we bring to appease you for all the wrong that we've done? And God's answer is, walk with me. So they're asking for this one-time solution, and God's like, no, this is a daily journey with me. I want to walk with you every day. I want to be your constant companion. When things are good, when things are bad, when you mess up, when you're right in step, I want to be with you. I think God is more saddened by our abandoning God than by our one-off wrong deeds or missteps. God keeps creating covenants with humans because God loves us, because God wants to be in relationship, and God knows that unless we are bound to God, we will wander off. We wander anyways, but at least we're bound in the covenant, right? And this is the whole limit of Micah. The people who are supposed to be bound to God are binding themselves to money and to idols and to power, thinking that it will make life easier or better or grander, but in reality, when we go against God... When we try to force production instead of cultivate life. When we abuse the masses instead of care for those in the margins. When we go against the created order and we not only have a 
when we go against the created order, we not only have a broken relationship with God and our neighbors, but now we have a broken relationship with creation, and the consequences are harsh. So what do we do when this covenant is broken? What do we do when we say, God, I, I can't do anything to make this right. I can't earn this. Is, is there any hope? Will God allow us back in the covenant? What's the punishment? Where are we left? Where does this courtroom drama end? Well, back in the courtroom, God steps out of the prosecutor's seat and onto the judge's bench. Because now it's time for sentencing, right? That's what the whole courtroom process is is, uh, pointed towards, is a sentence. And a just God cannot let injustice go overlooked. So God presents the sentence. Micah 6, verses 9 through 16. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. So he says, listen, everybody, prophet is saying, listen, everybody, God's ready for the sentence. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, foreign kings. And you have followed these foreign kings' traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people will, and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Now, Micah is looking forward and the, the northern kingdom has already fallen. They've already gone away. They've already been taken by, um, by foreign lands. I'm not going to say which one because I don't remember. And so now he's like, he's warning the people. He's like, it's going to happen. We've sinned. God's going to hand us over to, to these other nations. But this sentencing is what is sometimes called futility curses. Futility curses emphasize that one's best efforts and hard work will only lead to frustration and the loss of what was hoped for. And these curses come in in other places in Scripture. They come to those who break the covenant. These curses come because God has made a general covenant with creation. And when God's particular covenant people... When these particular people break their covenant, it impacts all of creation. And so God is maintaining his covenant with all of creation as well as trying to maintain this this covenant with this particular people. And so in this case, God is like a loving parent who lets the consequences of a child's action progress while God is still, still there to pick up the child in the comfort and the comfort and the grief. Usually in dramas, justice happens, or, you know, at least some of the time. In documentaries, we see more clearly the flaws in our legal system. People don't get what they deserve, or they get away with something they shouldn't. And in Micah 6, we see that, that we, as God's covenant people, we don't, get really, we don't really get what we deserve either. We've broken the covenant. We're clearly in the wrong. And yet, God brings us back into covenant relationship. And he will be with us while living out our sentence. He's going to jail with us. 
when the people are taken away into these other lands, God goes with them. And when they get to come back, God is with them. And that's not fair, right? Usually the person who brings charges against a defendant does not go to jail with the defendant. We don't get what we deserve, but that's part of the covenant. We'll look at Micah 7 next week, but just as a sneak peek, Micah exclaims at the end of chapter 7, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. God has not abandoned us, but calls us back in the covenant again and again. We are God's covenant people. We who have been baptized, we've been buried with Christ, been brought back into relationship with God. During this next song, I'm going to invite the band up, and during this next song, I'm going to invite you to remember your baptism. If you haven't yet been baptized, we'll baptize you. Um, If you have been baptized, I want to invite you to remember your baptism over this next song. And so I'm going to, the band's going to play, they're going to sing Oceans, and um, and we're going to, we're going to, you can just come as you feel led uh, to come up, and I have some water up here, and we're going to remember our baptisms. Let's pray. God of all creation, merciful, loving, faithful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient covenant people. We have not done your will. We have broken your law and your covenant. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. But God, hear our needy cry today. Forgive us, we pray. Bring us back into relationship with you. And free us for joyful obedience in your covenant love once again. Amen. You can come forward as you feel led.